Welcome to Experts Only Podcast, sponsored by Clean Capital. You can learn more at cleancapital.com. I'm your host, John Powers. Each week, we explore the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance with leaders across the industry. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome back to Experts Only Podcast. I'm your host, John Powers. And today, we talk to Joe Bonfiglio from the Environmental Defense Fund's C4 uh, EDF Action. Joe got a vast amount of experience both in policy and politics. And what we explore here is climate in the election here in 2020, both before the COVID outbreak and, of course, afterwards. So it's a really interesting deep dive into the way that the current cultural movement around climate is affecting politics. As always, you can get more episodes at cleancapital.com. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Joe, thanks so much for joining us at Experts Only. Hey, John, good to be here. So I want, I want to step back and talk a little bit about uh, you grew up in North Carolina. You ended up going to work on in Capitol Hill. First of all, where in sort of growing up did you get the bug that you wanted to to end up in Washington and get involved with, with policy? <laughs> That's funny. Uh, pretty early on, uh, and uh, I'm 40 now, and I've sort of like put the wayback machine on. Uh, you know, the the economy was shifting to computers and. Um, my my mother was really fixated uh, on me, you know, getting the computer. She thought that would be exactly the right thing for me. But I said, you know what? I I think this politics thing is pretty cool. And you know, she along with my family tried to talk me out of it. So we're talking, you know, high school, fifteen, sixteen, yeah, uh, trying to sort of direct me out of uh, this thing that nobody understood or nobody sort of knew. The Bonfilios uh, have zero political. Um, um, background, we, not the family business by any stretch. Yeah, uh, you know. So pretty early on, I, I thought this would be a sort of cool thing your parents to do. do. What did your parents do? Uh, my father's a jeweler, and my mother was an administrative assistant. Oh, right. so yeah. definitely not uh, yeah. the family business. Yeah. Uh, in fact, the family business would have been going to be a jeweler. But I was, you know, I was. I, was, I really wanted to go and 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 figure out how to uh, make a difference. Sort of the calling to public service, um, at least for me. Uh, was government and yeah. uh, and I really want to find my the, the best possible path there. So through school, you know, sort of just got my feet uh, uh, wet with 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 the work and and had an interest in it. But then really had to figure out how to how to make it happen um, after. And what was your entrance to the hill? Like, how did you decide? Was it through communications? Was it a specific policy issue? Like what brought you into? And for folks that aren't familiar with Washington, there's a bunch of different sort of first day jobs you can get there. Right, most of them are either sort of at a, at a, as a policy person, uh, or if you're really senior, a senior policy person, uh, or communications. Right, there's there's a variety of ways to touch or interning. Like, what was your what was your introduction? That's right, and I didn't get any of them. In fact, I, I moved up to to uh, Washington D.C. Uh, you know, took the advice of move up there, uh, get your resume up there, walk the hill. Uh, right. I did that. I, I, I tried that actually, um, and failed miserably. Moved up uh, about 12 days before September 11th, oh uh, and then spent about four months uh, trying to get a job on Capitol Hill uh, through September 11th, through the anthrax attacks on Capitol Hill. Uh, I like to joke, although it's not a joke, I was trying to get the job opening congressional mail while someone was trying to kill the guy opening oh, congressional mail. Right. So I was not successful at all. And it's, it's part of the story as I tell uh, when um, anyone sort of wants to break into the business, like there's no one path. I ended up going back to North Carolina, um, hopped on a political campaign, 
worked for free before eventually getting paid uh, just a little bit of money uh, that person won. And I ended up coming up to Washington, D.C. with then um, Congressman Brad Miller. Uh, yeah, of course. Of, uh, 2002. Yeah, that's interesting. I feel like it, it, um, how happy were your parents then when you had a job? I mean, they still didn't quite get it. Uh, I mean, and really, we'll sort of get to it later, but uh, really until Trump won in 2016, did I think my mother finally say, I get it, it matters, right? Right. A a family that was fundamentally not political um, voted, I think, most of the time. Right. Um, But then it just sort of, you know, it kind of crystallizes for people in different times. and, And for her, it was... Uh, very late. I had been in the gig for a while and yeah. the game for a while. No, I get it. My 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 folks. My mom was a teacher. My dad was a uh, was a, uh, had been at Sears and then Allstate for for almost forty years as an insurance salesman. And when I ran for Congress, it was like their first real political thing, right? And and uh, and matter of fact, I grew up Republican and didn't know until I ran for Congress that my dad became a Republican only so I could get a job in the town highway department. Because his dad had been the Democratic chair in this in another county that I ended up running for. Like, dude, that's how little politics we ever discussed at home. So uh, it's it's interesting, and it took years for them to figure out what I. I don't think they still have any idea what I do. My dad listens to this podcast. Well, but that's about it. well, I mean, when you ran, did they jump in? They were like, "All oh, right, what can we do?" Yeah, yeah, my dad is like the most uh, gregarious social person. My campaign manager put me aside and at one point, and he's like, "I think I ran the wrong powers." My dad was working the room, talking to everybody. <laughs> so yeah, they they got they got super involved. My mom worked the phones. Um, she was probably one of my most powerful messengers, right? Just calling other mothers, and and I just got back my rack. So so yeah. but let's go back to you for a second. So you end up in the hill working for Brad Miller, and then you sort of moved around the hill to a couple of different roles. And where in that space did sort of energy, environment, climate change start to get into your vernacular? Like what what sort of hatch that that uh, seed. Yeah, I had spent a bit of time in the Senate, but it really didn't start until uh, I popped back over in the House. I was chief of staff to a um, South Louisiana South Louisiana Democrat, a, a Cajun uh, uh, named Charlie Malasson. He was a uh, he was a, a sort of blue dog Democrat on the Energy and Commerce Committee, and this was 2000, you know, 2009, 2010, right. smack dab in the middle of the both healthcare and cap and trade fight in Congress. Right. Uh, and that was just such a uh, interesting time to be doing the work. If you're a political nerd and a policy geek in any in any way, that was just an, am- an amazing time to to see really big things try to get done. Healthcare got over the finish line. Cap and trade did not. Uh, and it was one of those one of those unfinished business things that always sort of lingered with me. Uh, mm. And um, you know, now we are so far from 2008, 2009, 10, when that fight was. Yeah. But, um, you know, to sort of watch the issue mature, just become so much more politically uh, salient and, and strong over this over those last 10 years, uh, it's 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 really been a sort of fun ride. I'm glad I got the bug, uh, at least on the issue back then, and I'm stuck with it. Yeah, I mean, just reflecting, like, we almost, we almost had a bipartisan Senate bill with, with Kerry McCain, and, and uh, was it Graham, right, that that if that would have gone, we would have had climate legislation in 2009. Um, it was that, I think it was probably that close. and uh, Incredibly close. Yeah. And there's a lot of lessons Incredibly. to come out of that, including the fact that the environmental climate community wasn't prepared to defend the blue dogs and others that voted for the 
the climate bill to, to begin with. And I think that scared a lot of senators off. But at the same point, having gone to work at the Pentagon not long after that, people just didn't use the word climate change for years in Washington. Right. And nope. then it's 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 research. It's, you know, it's come back into in a very positive way. You and I talked about this before last year in particular. You had the emergence of Greta and the cultural awakening that's continued to move forward. Um, mm-hmm. I want to jump forward to EDF here and sort of political awakening. Hopefully that would continue to move forward on. But what took you from the hill into the advocacy side? And then I do want to talk about EDF action and sort of what the mission is. Yeah, and and uh, you actually alluded to to uh, that a bit um, in 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 that trans- in that transition. In that, uh, you know, during the cap and trade fight, there was no cover, right, for politicians to step out. And the other side was uh, it was if you remember the moment, it was that pivot from issue advocacy to politics. Citizens United. It was exactly that moment uh, where uh, politicians were getting beat up in direct mail, radio, TV, on every single thing that they did, and in this case, two hot-button issues, healthcare and, and, um, and, and, and climate cap and trade, uh, or cap access as it became right, sort right. of um, well-driven um, well, well sort of home. And what drew me to EDF uh, was they very much knew what, uh, what was missing from that fight, and it was the ability to influence um, uh, folks back home in, in congressional congressional districts in key states, the same way that the issue opponents had had been doing, and wanted to grow EDF action. Uh, posted this this job to help um, you know sort of be the uh, um, manager of uh, this organization that they wanted to grow. I thought that was intriguing, uh, and and it, you know sort of drew me from uh, the hill, and really have been here for just just about nine years. Yeah, so, to, so for folks that are not familiar with the politics side of things, EDF, we keep talking about, is Environmental Defense Fund. And there is a C3 nonprofit arm that does amazing uh, policy work, legislative work, uh, advocacy work. Uh, but once you get more and more political on that work, you've got to create what's known as the C4, which is a different tax treatment to, to the money you raise. Joe runs the C4 side of that. Can you talk a little bit about sort of the mission of EDF C4, EDF Action? And maybe how that mission has sort of evolved, I guess. Absolutely. So EDF Action is is EDF's advocacy partner, uh, is how we as we, we we term it. Uh, and the organization does really two things: it is the lobbying entity or lobbying arm for EDF, not just in Congress but in key states. Folks that are, are sort of tuning in and, and sort of listening don't know EDF. Um, it is a global organization, uh, but has a, a really big domestic program of uh, of work, so that we are we are pressing for change in Congress, but we're also pressing for change in New Mexico and Colorado, California. Right. Uh, and this the five hundred one c four is the primary uh, lobbying vehicle, but it also has the ability to influence politics. This is something that we've added over time, uh, really starting in twenty fourteen. Uh, and then, uh, of course, sort of eyeing a big election cycle in 2020, we have uh, we we are able to influence politics in a number of ways, either by helping raise money for candidates, or in some cases, um, executing what are called independent expenditure campaigns. Uh, those uh, paid communications uh, that are in support or or sort of against a, a politician, be it a congress a congressman or a senator 
or in the case of last cycle, um, candidates for a water board in, in Arizona. So being able to weigh in and influence how voters perceive these individual uh, um, candidates um, is is really an incredibly necessary um, part of the work, and it's scaled at EDF Action for um, really in the last couple of years. Yeah, let's I wanna, let's go back to the Waterworks. I, I want to talk through that as sort of as a, as a case study for folks that are sort of unfamiliar with you know, how this influence, why this influence matters. You know, to take it out of Washington for Washington for a second and talk about as much as you can. You know, the role that you guys played and add some color to why that race was important and and you know important setting policy going forward. Let me do the elevator of of sort of the the background of why this became important, uh, yeah. and we'll sort of get to the the political expenditure. You know, water is hugely important uh, in the Colorado River Basin and out west. Uh, it is uh, it is certainly a quantity and quality issue, but quantity and uh, given all the agriculture and all the irrigation out there, it is just it, it is just a, a tremendous hot button issue. And coming to any sort of progress on these issues that are so difficult takes years. So for the last better part of the last uh, five, 10 years, the states in and around this watershed have been trying to come up with a water conservation plan or, or a, um, an agreement, a pact in, uh, between these key states. Arizona was a holdout. And Arizona was a holdout um, for a variety of reasons, but they just couldn't quite align the water districts, the, the folks that, um, that uh, assign um, water rights to, to various entities uh, you know, wasn't um, wasn't bought in on a on a plan. The legislature wasn't bought in a plan, and of course, um, when that comes when 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 you don't have that type of alignment, you can't get passed. Right. So there was an opportunity in 2018 to help shape the uh, the water board, and um, the water board had a number of open seats in Maricopa County, a uh, really uh, Phoenix, the really big uh, county. There's a, a ton of people, uh, and there there was a number of seats that were open. And there were a number of candidates that were uh, water conservation-minded candidates for this board. And we saw this as an opportunity to help shape who was on this board uh, and show that there was a lot of support for finally pushing forward, finally moving forward on, uh, on, on this water conservation plan. We did that by backing these candidates. They ended up uh, winning seats on the board. And fast forward, the next six months uh, went as quickly as, as you could have ever hoped. Um, the board came together, approved, again, this multi-state pack. The legislature approved uh, the plan that the board um, moved through. And actually, there was, was a piece in Congress. Uh, the, the, uh, the delegation, the Arizona delegation, actually brought it before Congress, passed through Congress. And now, uh, again, something that took uh, nearly 10 years from, uh, from the idea um, through uh, its implementation, uh, there's a plan uh, out west uh, to divvy up water and um, conserve water. And I just don't think that would have happened in the time frame that we, we just talked about without that political um, push. It's why, why politics matters to policy, right? I think it's, it's, it's critical. Absolutely. So, you know, we're, we're doing this interview. It'll, it'll air later, but this is literally on Earth Day. You know, we're living, we're both doing it at our home because of COVID-19. You know, I want to look at the 2020 campaign with you a little bit here, but I want to look at it first pre-COVID. Uh, and then look at sort of the the last 60 to 90 day push at the end of the year, starting obviously with probably what's on most people's mind, the presidential, but then, you know, talk a little bit about the House and Senate as well. There's no doubt about it. Climate was 
elevating up as a top tier issue, especially during the primaries, but you know, across the country in a way that, that at least in my lifetime, I don't remember being at this level before. Can you add, you know, talk for a second about what you guys were seeing in terms of numbers there and, you know, the, the, the interest of the sort of the, the voting public on, on these issues. Yeah. And you hadn't seen it in your lifetime. I hadn't seen it in my lifetime. The issue uh, has, has, and I don't want to say past tense there, because I think it's the under, there's an underlying um, threat of this that will remain. Um, but climate, climate popped as a salient political issue uh, really in 2018 and, and 2019 just took on a life of its own. I think you had Anthony, Anthony Lacerowitz uh, on your podcast before yeah. he runs Yale's uh, uh, climate uh, um, communications program. And their tracker uh, is something that we always go back to as it's a great sort of uh, where the issue has been, where it is now. And um, their tracker in 2019 um, saw just an incredible amount of growth. Um, as people as as people crystallized on the problem and saw that it needed a solution, and then began to attach that to politics. So, you know, from his survey, you know, more than four in ten registered voters, about forty five percent, said that a candidate's position on global warming would be very important uh, to uh, to their vote in the twenty twenty presidential, and that was an increase in, of seven points. You know, in in just about a, a, a sort of that three month, a critical three month uh, um, uh, period of time uh, when the, the candidates, the Democratic candidates in 2019 were sort of just marching out there. And that growth was not just Democrats. Now, Democrats in that, in that survey were up about eight points um, in that sort of measure, but also in independence. And I think that's a nod back to what right. we saw in 2018. Uh, you know, the issue... The cultural moment at that time, is that in the midst of sort yes. of the, the Greta... Uh, the 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 moment of Greta, uh, right. uh, you know, and again, you're sort of seeing um, not just that and the awareness on the issue, but people connecting it to their vote. Right. You know, the the idea right. that climate moved from, and it's always been on the issue set. So when political nerds look at how people, uh, you know, are thinking about who they vote for, they sort of rank issues. And, you know, the issue list that is tested could be 25 issues long. And you know the the climate across the political spectrum was at about 11, 11 on that list, but that had been up uh, nearly six or seven points uh, from the year prior. Right. Just that cultural moment pushed people's uh, the intensity of uh, of the issue in in their brains, uh, and in turn, you know how they're going to factor, uh, you know, their vote, but among Democrats, and this is where I think you really saw it sort of play with politics, um, it, was, uh, it was a top three issue with liberal Democrats, their number one issue. Wow. So you saw the early primary states of, uh, of Iowa and uh, New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina, where candidates are going through talking about the core issues of those states, and then everyone's doing a riff on climate. Right. Because it was just one of those, uh, you know, it's one of the, it's one of those in the in that moment, a um, flash, um, a flashpoint, uh, uh, you know, in in politics, democratic politics, uh, but I think in politics writ large. Yeah, interesting. So pre, let's let's go to say say January, right before we sort of began to really think through and launch our shelter in place in March. 
Like, was that momentum continuing? I mean, I don't think we'd, we'd gotten, we'd probably gotten through Iowa. We weren't in a place where, you know, Biden was the, the nominee, but that, that momentum, that, that interest, you know, as people started to go to the polls um, in January and February, we see evidence that continued forward. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and in the closing, the closing days of some of those early primary states, uh, you had, again, candidates communicating on climate in the, in the, in the, in the very short uh, camp of Michael Bloomberg, right? Uh, who, uh, you know, who ramped up and ramped out um, about as quickly as I've ever seen uh, spending uh, a massive amount of money. You know, this is a candidate that quickly learned that in order to reach voters, you had to talk about climate and ran, in some cases, three different climate ads in key states. At one point, Michael Bloomberg had three different climate ads up in Florida. Wow. Florida. So like, you know, it just, again, it's a a little bit of a, uh, it's a non-scientific, but I'll tell you, they were doing, they were doing the research to figure out that that was necessary. Right. And of course the resources to allow that type of variety. Uh, But, you know, again, that feels like a million years ago, um, but it was really just a few months ago. Yeah. I mean, less than, less than 60 days when you think about it. So, so now we sit here, you know, as we're having this conversation, Bernie has officially come out and backed back Biden. The Democratic Party has 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 started to come behind a nominee. You know, I think we both agree, obviously, that this is probably the most dangerous president of our time to our issues, whether it be EPA undercutting methane issues uh, or or just undercutting science as a whole. Um, to the point that for the first time ever, EDF Action, which is a bipartisan organization, came out. To counter the president. Do you want to talk for a second about that that effort at EDF, and then I do want to talk about sort of the the last three months of the campaign. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I I credit Trump and this unfortunate last years of actually driving some of that movement of the political salience of climate. So I don't want to. Right. It's a bit of a tangent, but you know, people sort of wonder why voters have focused on this issue. I actually think Trump is one of those reasons. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Because. Um, his language on climate um, has been has been denialism, calling it a hoax, calling it uh, a, a Chinese hoax. Actually, right, um, right. And to be fair, and China gets a every lot of turn, <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. it, it, it's unfortunately true. Uh, you know, the administration has has uh, has walked the walk or walked the talk. I think the New York Times has a running tracker of, of um, more than 100 anti-environmental actions the Trump administration has uh, has either started or finished um, right. in the three and a half years that uh, they've been running the show. Uh, we did a we sort of did a, a quick uh, a quick look at, at what EDF and EDF Action were, were working against. We were working against I think 37 um, of those directly. Um, so had our hands full across a range of issues. But on climate, you know, even just, I think, uh, a week or two ago, trying to uh, finalize and push through the auto rules, uh, the auto efficiency rules, that I don't even think the, the, uh, the automobile industry wants um, or, or, want, or wants to fight just because of the timing here. They right. want to get it done before a new Congress comes in or a new, potentially a new president comes in. So it's locked in. So even in the midst of this, uh, of this 
uh, health crisis, you are seeing just the focus of an administration to do as much as, as they possibly can to unravel climate and environmental progress. Yeah, Sorry. it's interesting. I feel like so, it's such an untold story out of this ministry because people focus on what he says, what he tweets. I don't think he actually has a whole bunch of personal anxiety around these issues at all, but he puts in charge a coal lobbyist at the EPA or a cowboy at the Department of Interior, and they just tear apart uh, especially at EPA, like they, they came with their knives, they knew what they were doing, they went after the rules, and they've, they've done things that people just don't really pay attention to in the general public, but are going to have long-term detrimental impacts to, to our health and our, the health of our planet. Very smart, and very smartly are not dismissing rules, they're just rewriting them. They're right. rewriting them to do nothing. Right. So again, the president's uh, language is uh, kind of buffoonish, but the team is uh, and, uh, that is un- undermining a lot of these environmental protections knows exactly what they're doing. Exactly, and I think for people that don't understand like the rules process, to, you can't just fix it day one. You got to go back in. It'll take it'll take years of a new administration to get us back to where we were uh, in years lost and in, in, in progress. So let's let's look ahead. You know, we expect to have a a, a Biden candidacy uh, versus Trump. Uh, it, here in the in 2020, uh, leading into November, traditional politics. There, there was going to be a you know convention this summer where folks are laying out their platforms, and then you know folks go to Ohio and Pennsylvania in, in October, and knock on doors to try to get their 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 candidate elected. Who knows if that's even going to be possible? If they're going to be doing it in masks, they're able to go at all. Like, what does you know? How does COVID affect the election this year? You know, how do you guys sort of think of your playbook and as much as you want to share, you know, your ability to affect that? And will will climate be an issue people are voting on again? Or is it just literally the incompetence around COVID that's going to drive this? Like what, you know, what is, how does this sort of begin to play out uh, the next few months? Whenever this launches, uh, these answers could be woefully out of date. I think we're in this moment yeah, true. where, right, the, the uh, you know, we are expecting this health crisis to shift to an economic uh, a crisis or an economic recovery or start of an economic recovery, God knows when, yeah. um, you know, so, so, you know, we are, we are trying to, we're trying to figure out this election and it is, it is a very classic uh, moving target. Use your analogy, you know, Lucy pulling the football. Like there, there are so many, uh, this is, this is one for the ages and, um, you know, sort of zip pulling back, I'm trying to wrap my head around uh, an election that not only deals with a, a health crisis that has us um, in our homes for the most part, or certainly um, normalcy not looking like uh, you know, 40,000 people um, packing college football games uh, anytime soon, right? I mean, that, 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 that was sort of what we all were looking forward to, or you know, if you're basketball or baseball, yeah. that's not, that's not going to happen. So you know, we're never going to get way, back to that. point out is a Wild Buffalo Bills fan with the best lineup we've had in the best part of this millennial millennium. The NFL season doesn't happen. It's going to be just heartbreak. <laughs> heartbreak. <laughs> well, if it happens, it's not going to look. It's not going to look. No, like I have had season tickets for twenty years. I'm not going to go to the games. So. Right. It'd be right. I mean, you'll have a great seat in front of your yeah. TV, <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, you know. But you know that is sort of the uh, you know sort of the new normal. Uh, of of that, that piece of the social distancing, what have you, mixed with a an economy that is not just going to bounce bounce right back. Right. 
with one more with one more I think people are sort of understanding incredible partisanship. So we're going to try to figure out how to how to navigate this this election cycle with with these just huge drivers of how people are viewing uh, politics. We have we have voted through wars. We have voted through crises. But we've never actually voted or gone to the polls with all these things stacking upon each other. Right. And I don't ever remember a time when I was studying this as a kid or doing this professionally where you had this sort of deep partisanship that is driving um, how people view a health crisis and economic crisis and eventually how people are allowed to go vote to one of your sort of right. questions. So, so looking ahead for people, you know, if you, if you listen to this podcast, you most likely believe in climate change is happening and you want to drive action on this. So, you know, what advice do you have for the audience of how they can play a role to make sure this continues to be a top tier issue going forward? And, you know, is there, is there ways for them to engage, figure out talking points to convince uh, folks on their Zoom calls, maybe not when they're knocking on doors or whatever, whatever the approach is going to be, that, you know, 2020 continues to be not just a dramatic election for our economy and for our personal health, but for the health of the planet? Well, so we're going to have to figure out how to campaign in this moment. Uh, and we sort of jokingly say Zoom calls or uh, you know, telephone calls or texts or, or, or sort of however we're engaging with people these days. Uh, one of the one of the most important things that people can do or sort of need to know is that we're gonna we're gonna need help in talking to voters, right? Because that that doesn't actually change. Uh, like that part of campaign politics is is constant. The sort of delivery method um, yeah. is is gonna maybe be different, but we're gonna have to talk to people because you know there is there, and I think that 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 voters understand uh, what's at stake this election cycle. Um, but uh, they are not going to focus on this election to the very end. So folks listening to this podcast, you know, first things first, there will be opportunities um, to, to, to join the fight. Um, one of the easiest ways that, that we provide is by going to eofaction.org slash join, and you'll get all, the, uh, get all the updates of the things that we'll try to pull off, which could be, uh, you know, using our, you know, our member to call um, voters that, you know, may not show up at the polls. Right. Help them understand that their state has just gone to a mail-in, uh, a, a mail-in ballot. Uh, that that is going to that's another piece of this puzzle that's going to shift over uh, the course of the next couple of months, which states open up their absentee. Uh, yeah, the disinformation um, campaign that's going to counter that. Uh, it's going to be phenomenal, right? So how do it's we? It's incredible. Yeah, interesting. And, so and you know, we view ourselves as a as a as a group that that wants to help people go vote. We're gonna have to figure out how to navigate that and pull these people in to help push that process. Right. So I, I live in New York, right? There's a likely chance New York's gonna go for Biden, you know. But I want to help influence folks in 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 Ohio or at school in Cleveland or in Virginia where I used to live. You know, how does a someone who doesn't know or had not been involved in a campaign before? but also realizes this is the most important election of our lifetime. How do they get involved? They, they sign up at EDF Action. You know, any other sort of advice on how they can you know, dip their toe in the water for the first time? Yeah, there are, are so many uh, efforts that are going to spark up. And I think, uh, I, I think, it's, I think you're going to have to, you're going to be tripping over uh, opportunities. Uh, and so yeah. I mean that um, figuratively. Um, around still your, house your, your house because you can't leave your house. Right. 
Right. It'll, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but the way we're communicating now uh, is exactly how we're going to have to, from our homes in either New York or in this case uh, for me, Northern Virginia, talk to people and urge them to, uh, you know, to consider uh, what's take this election and go and vote. Um, there will be a lot of virtual ways to do that. Uh, right. We will um, we'll put that out there. But you know, if you are attached uh, to any um, any organization, be the Sierra Club, uh, Lead Conservation Voters, maybe Emily's List, um, Planned Parenthood, uh, you know, a range of environmental uh, and and progressive um, uh, groups out there are going to put together a really great program. Uh, maybe go outside your comfort zone a little bit. Uh, if you uh, really hated knocking on doors. In this case, it's going to be phone calls, uh, right. and phone calls to people that are going to need to hear uh, someone's voice and 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 um, you know to get out there and 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 vote. We're going to have to do that, and our our partners are going to have to do that. And I think people that have never done this uh, stuff before are going to have to sort of get past that sort of nervousness and get out there and and help out. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think people need to really take action. And and the second one is is to you know in these tough economic times to to open your wallet, get you know go to EDF action and, and even if it's $25 I mean, help, help make donations, help drive the change. Cause it's, it's, it's going to be critical, critical going ahead. I just want to say that I'm really heartened that so many people continue to do that. Yeah. Uh, and they recognize that, you know, that we have a fight ahead of us uh, yeah. uh, in our continuing to give it is, it really, it's, it, it's incredibly necessary and, and, and so very, very much appreciated. So going back to yourself, North Carolina, you know, you're about to leave, to uh, head up to the city uh, in DC, and, and with your your stack of resumes, you know, if you could sit down with yourself at that time and and you know grab a coffee or grab a beer and give yourself a piece of advice, what would you say? It was a 1994 blue Honda Civic that I had forever. I think I, I think I I put like 220 thousand miles on that car before I donated it to the local uh, NPR station because it probably shouldn't have been on the road. <laughs> I think I think that person didn't fully appreciate how, uh, I think truly lucky 18, 20 years later, he would look back at a, at, at a life that, um, has been really, really good. And I don't think, I think I should have told myself to appreciate each of those moments that were so fast and fleeting, especially with my time on the Hill, uh, and, and through some of these election cycles, because I think looking back at it, um, I, it, it's been a, it's been, it's been a great run. Uh, I'm not done yet. Yeah, but I know in the I know in the moment I just you know zipped right past it and probably tried to find the cheapest beer and wing night um, <laughs> effort uh, after right after yeah. something really fantastic or sort of you know again wonderfully, wonderfully nerdy happened uh, you know over the course of a typical hill day or listen of all all the all that homework you've done and all all the the experience I think leads to I mean we're we're in the Super Bowl right now if there ever has been for for our fight and uh, you know I think we. we uh, Ask folks to to pay attention and, and support EDF Action uh, and uh, and other organizations that are out there helping to advocate for this change. Joe, thank you so much for joining us at Experts Only. John, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And I thank the team at EDF Action for helping uh, to put this together. Thanks to um, Carly Batten at Clean Capital for also helping to put this together. And you can get more episodes at cleancapital.com. As always, I look forward to your insights on folks we should be talking to. Feel free to send those our way. And I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening in today's conversation. Find more episodes on cleancapital.com, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. We look forward to continuing our conversation on energy, innovation, and finance with you.